You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, Moxie LaBouche voiceovers, and the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, including our newest members, Troy, Paul, Mitch, and Karen, who will soon be able to hear the December Spot the Lie, which has been rescheduled multiple times. And I think for the first bonus mini for this month, I'll talk about a particular quarantine food shortage you might not have thought about and the multiple strange things that caused it. Like many explorers, Henry Hudson tried and failed to discover the Northeast Passage. The principal problem being that it didn't exist. At least he did manage to map out most of the eastern seaboard. During his 1609 expedition, he found himself in the territory of the Lenape people, who cautiously decided to trade fur and supplies with these trespassing white men rather than attack them. To celebrate that, Hudson threw a party that is still being referenced to this day, and I guarantee you have heard of it. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. We've made it through our first COVID Christmas New Year's corridor. I say first because I'm still seeing a lot of unmasked faces and bare noses at the grocery store. Most of us are missing going to parties these days. If you're not missing them because you are a textbook actual introvert, carry on with your activities. If you're not missing them because you're still going to parties, I'd like to have a few four-letter words with you outside after the show. So I thought today we might live vicariously through some of the most remarkable parties, soirees, shindigs, salons, and do's ever thrown. We all want to keep up with the Joneses, a phrase we get from a comic strip that started in 1913. For Mr. and Mrs. Bradley-Martin of turn-of-the-last-century Manhattan, nothing could be more important. When climbing the social ladder one rung at a time became too frustrating for the new money couple, they decided to go for broke, even if that meant literally. They would throw the social event of the season, nay, the year. They weren't about to get bogged down with little details, like the fact that everyone not in the upper crust, was dealing with a serious economic recession. The best kind of party, as everyone knows, is a fancy dress party. Costume party, to those of us colonials. Guests were instructed to come dressed as a famous historical figure from the previous three centuries. You'd be hard-pressed to be the only person dressed as your favorite queen or general, as the guest list was a whopping 800 names long. And that was just the beginning. The Bradley Martin's social secretary, because of course they had one of those, drafted florid descriptions of the coming festivities to print in the newspaper. For example, 
Five mirrors on the north side of the ballroom, richly but not heavily garlanded in a curtain effect by mauve orchids and the feathery plamusa vine. The profusion of mauve orchids will stream carelessly to the floor like the untied bonnet strings of a thoughtless child. His prose succeeded in drawing a lot of attention across all social strata, from other socialites dying for an invite to the clergy and even the newspapers themselves, who took a rather dim view of the proposed extravagance. I'll link to one of these social secretaries' write-ups in the show notes and website, and you can judge for yourself. The Bradley Martins responded to this criticism by pointing out that their ball would, quote, stimulate trade by creating demand for seamstresses, hairdressers, florists, and the like, which is getting irritatingly close to trickle-down economics. The short notice for the guests, they pointed out, would mean no one would have time to order their costume from Paris, so local tailors would get the work instead. Their rebuttal only served to bring more attention to the party planning, and there's no such thing as bad publicity. The party would be held at the newly completed Waldorf Astoria on Fifth Avenue, where the Empire State Building stands today. The hotel staff were instructed to do whatever they had to do to make the hotel look like Versailles during the reign of Louis XV. Cost be damned. In addition to the 6,000 orchids, flowers were brought in from hothouses as far away as South Carolina and Alabama. Did I mention this party was happening in February? Heaps of roses were thrown against the walls and allowed to rest on the floor to later be crushed under the feet of the fancy people. There were enough flowers to hide the orchestra, not a quartet or a chamber ensemble, an orchestra that played throughout the night. A company of 100 waiters would serve guests caviar-stuffed oysters, turtle, suckling pig, and foie gras, and pour out a staggering 4,000 bottles of Moet and Chandon champagne in the five hours of ridiculous excess. The evening of the party finally arrived, February 10, 1897. Regular folks gathered outside to watch the guests arrive at 11 p.m., eager to see the costumes the papers had reported the guests planned to wear. Mrs. Bradley Martin, dressed as Mary, Queen of Scots, in a gown with a 20-foot train and over $2 million in modern figures worth of diamonds. Not to be outdone, the famous Mrs. Astor managed to wear twice as many diamonds. There were 50 Marie Antoinettes, 10 Lady Pompadours, and three Catherine the Greats. One London magazine estimated that the ball's female revelers used more than 500 pounds of rouge, two and a half flour barrels worth of powder, and enough powder puffs to make a pile 10 feet high and 6 feet wide. I haven't checked the math, but I like to believe it's correct. In addition to the looky-loos outside, there was also an obvious police presence, some 200 strong. Were they worried about champagne-drunk swells getting into fisticuffs? No, they had a very real concern that a riot might break out. Figures vary, but the Bradley Martins spent between two hundred and four hundred thousand dollars 
the equivalent of between four and nine million dollars today, on this party, or between five and ten thousand dollars per guest. The U.S. had been in a serious recession for twenty years at that point. Unemployment was high. Those who were working made an average of four hundred dollars a year, seven dollars and change per week. You could feed, clothe, and house a family with five children for about a dollar twenty-five a day back then. While the little people struggled to do even that, the millionaires enjoyed a party that would have paid a day's wage for a quarter million people. The Bradley Martins spent enough money to provide for nearly nine hundred families for a year, on a party that lasted five hours. With a fleet of 400 carriages to take the guests home at the end. When the total bill for the party got out, it got the attention of another city department, the New York City Tax Authority. They doubled the Bradley Martins tax assessment, as well as raising the taxes of many of the guests, almost all of whom were millionaires. The power couple apparently felt the city was being ungrateful for all their generous economic stimuli. They packed up and moved into permanent tax exile in the UK. Self-imposed exile is one thing, but our next host found himself changing out of his party clothes and into a prison jumpsuit. Presenting Dennis Kolowski, former CEO of Tyco, the security system company, not the toy company, because that's what I thought at first too. Kozlowski and another man were convicted in 2005 of stealing 150 million dollars from the company, and making a staggering 430 million dollars more by artificially inflating the value of the company's stock. When you steal something, hypothetically, not saying you ever have, you generally want to keep that on the down low, real hush hush. Apparently, though, when you steal the equivalent of the gross domestic product of Dominica. You need to show it off. Kozlowski used company money to pay for his thirty million dollar New York City apartment, appointed with six thousand dollar shower curtains and fifteen thousand dollar dog umbrella stands. He rounded out his attempt at a conspicuous consumption gold medal by throwing a rager so epic it has become known as the Tyco Roman Orgy, and the company actually footed. Half the bill for the two million dollar week-long fortieth birthday party for Kozlowski's wife Karen on the island of Sardinia in two thousand two. The professional party planners must have known they had a job of work ahead of them when they were given exacting instructions for the event. Here's an excerpt from the memo: Guests arrive at the club starting at seven fifteen p.m. Two gladiators are standing next to the door. One opens the door. The other helps the guests. We have a lion or horse with a chariot for the shock value. The guests come into the pool area. The band is playing. They are dressed in elegant chic. Big ice sculpture of David. Lots of shellfish and caviar at his feet. A waiter is pouring stoli vodka into the statue's back, so it comes out his penis into a crystal glass. Waiters are passing cocktails in chalices. They are dressed in linen togas with fig wreath on head. A full bar with fabulous linens. 
We have rented fig trees with tiny lights everywhere to fill some space. 8.30. Waiters instruct that dinner is served. We all walk up to the loggia. The tables are all family style with the main table in front. The tables have incredible linens with chalices as wine glasses. You know people are operating in a different reality from the rest of us when they have Michelangelo's David peeing vodka. Unlike the Bradley Martin party, there are photos and videos of the Tycho Roman orgy, which prosecutors included in their evidence against Kozlowski at his first trial. According to a press report of the trial, the tape also showed, quote, Five young women in scantiaphanous frocks cavorting around a swimming pool, half-naked male models posing in snapshots with female guests, and a performance by music legend Jimmy Buffett. No mention is made of how much of the $2 million price tag went to the mayor of Margaritaville, but keep that concept in the back of your mind for a couple of minutes. There was so much more to the party that the jury didn't get to see, like two men armored as imperial centurions carrying the birthday girl into a faux arena built for the occasion. The jury that saw that footage didn't convict Kozlowski. They didn't get the chance. The judge declared a mistrial after a juror who apparently wanted Kozlowski to get off gave an OK hand sign to the defense table. During the second trial, prosecutors focused less on Kozlowski's notoriously opulent lifestyle and more on the actual accounting. He and former Tycho CFO Mark Schwartz were ordered to pay back $134 million and pay a $70 million fine. Even after his conviction, Kozlowski maintained his innocence, saying, I was a guy sitting in a courtroom making $100 million a year, and I think a juror sitting there would have to say, All that money? He must have done something wrong. I think it's as simple as that. He must have had one of those moms who tells you that the other kids make fun of you because they're jealous. It must be that, and not, you know, all the flagrant crime. If the 1% in America fail to impress you, you can always head to the oil-rich Middle East. You have to live a seriously lavish lifestyle to stand out in a region where they built an indoor snow skiing resort in the desert, and people buy Lamborghinis made of actual gold. Sultan Haji Hassan al-Bulkaya of Brunei looked at that and said, Hold my non-alcoholic beer. In 1996, the Sultan decided to mark his 50th birthday with not just a party, but a two-week-long historical event. This was a man with 3,000 luxury cars and a 1,778-room palace who paid his badminton coach $2 million a year, after all. For starters, the venue. Forget renting the party room at the Sizzler. The Sultan had a stadium built for the occasion, in which they held a concert and a polo match. The 3,000-person guest list included many world leaders, including British royals, as well as celebrities. As far as entertainment goes, did you remember to think about Jimmy Buffett and his fee? If you scale up the wealth and importance of the guest of honor, a sultan deserves no less than a king. The king of pop, Michael Jackson specifically, who was paid $16 million to perform at the party. He didn't do one set and then pack out. 
he actually performed four concerts. If you're the kind of old-school person who dislikes the idea of goodie bags for guests, you're going to hate this next part. Guests were gifted a freaking gold medal. The two-week-long party reportedly cost $27 million, which scales up to about $40 million now. Did it put much of a dent in the old checking account? Emphatically not. According to Forbes, the party cost about 0.1% of the Sultan's net worth. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Of course, Sultan Haji isn't the only ruler to let extravagant amounts of hair down. If one person's 50th birthday party was big the 25th hundred anniversary of the founding of the Persian Empire must be monumentous. At least, that's what the Shah of Iran thought in 1971, and he put together what is widely thought to have been the most expensive party in history. Of all time. Anywhere. To give Iran more spotlight on the world stage, the Shah threw a party Scheherazade would have trouble imagining. Three enormous tents and dozens of smaller ones were erected in Persepolis, making it the swankiest tent city ever. The tents were air-conditioned, of course, can't have people sweating through their designer clothes, and were bedecked with Baccarat crystal, Limoges china, and porthole linens by the same interior designers that helped Jackie Kennedy do up the White House. Among the 500 guests in the luxury pop-up, were nine kings, five queens, 16 presidents, and two sultans. There was Princess Grace of Monaco and U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew. Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie had RSVP'd for himself plus five, but showed up with plus 72 guests. Of course, you have to feed those 500 people, and that required 7,700 pounds of meat 8,000 pounds of butter and cheese, and 1,000 pints of cream. The food was prepared by 165 French chefs 
and washed down with 25,000 bottles of wine. French hairdressers were also on hand in case anyone's coiffure was less than perfect, and they were armed with 300 wigs and 240 pounds of hairpins, of which I'm going to assume, based on my life experience, they had about three left at the end of the night. The Shah of Iran spent $90 million to celebrate the peacock throne. And that's in 1971 dollars. Today, that would be over $516 million. For perspective, the Shah spent 20% more on that party than the operating budget of the Tokyo Summer Olympics seven years earlier. When the man known as Old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, was sworn in as president in 1829, he wanted to preserve the dignity of the office throughout the inaugural celebrations. Just kidding, he was a garbage human for a lot of reasons, and his inaugural reception was completely on brand. Jackson supposedly declared his inauguration would be open to anyone who wanted to attend. A crowd of as many as 20,000 people showed up at the White House to get their drink on. Anyone who's had two unexpected guests show up and get rowdy drunk can attest that things got out of hand quickly. The celebrants tore the place apart. Jackson reportedly had to jump out of a window to escape. White House staff had to lure the partiers outside with vats of free liquor on the lawn. The cleanup was so massive, with broken furniture strewn about, that Jackson had to ask Congress for $50,000 to redecorate. And Jackson ended his time in office the same way. As a last blast, Jackson held history's biggest cheese party. New York dairy farmers had presented the president with a 1,400-pound or 635-kilo wheel of cheese, brought to the White House by a cart drawn by 24 horses. The cheese sat in the foyer for two long years. Rather than leave it for Martin Van Buren to deal with, Jackson again threw open the metaphorical and physical doors. Thankfully, only 10,000 people showed up this time. That cheese didn't stand a chance and was gone in two hours. The smell, described as an evil-smelling horror, hung around in the air for months. So many people have gotten their party on in colossal fashion, we're going to have to broadstroke some of these. Need a reason to party? How about winning World War II? Russia had fought hard and suffered greatly, so when they came out on top, it was time to celebrate. The party started at 1 in the morning on May 9, 1945, when Germany's surrender was officially confirmed. 22 hours later, the party finally wound down because the entire city of Moscow was out of vodka. My retired sailor husband has a similar story about his ship docking in Portsmouth, England, and the crew of the Harry S. Truman drank all the liquor, all the beer, and most of the wine in the town. And they were just celebrating being on shore. Speaking of which, I found a great new old expression, drunk by naval standards. It's a British expression from the age of sail to mean someone is so off their face smashed 
that it's hard to believe they'd ever been sober. And there are plenty of examples, but a highlight was Admiral Edward Russell's party for officers in 1694. He had the fountain on his estate drained and filled with punch. If you want to try the punch for your next get-together, mix up 250 gallons of brandy, 125 gallons of wine, 20 gallons of lime juice, 1,400 pounds of sugar, 2,500 lemons, and 5 pounds of nutmeg. Do the Townsends from the 18th Century Cooking YouTube channel know about that? Russell had the punch served by bartenders paddling around the fountain in a canoe. The bartenders had to work in 15-minute shifts to avoid passing out from the fumes. The party ran for a week, during which the revelry only stopped long enough to put a canopy over the fountain so the rain wouldn't water down the booze. Not every drunken sailor story goes as well, though. Just ask King Henry I of England. The sinking of the White Ship in 1120 cost him his only legitimate son and heir, William, along with an illegitimate son and daughter, and various other nobles, princesses, counts, basically everyone who was in line of succession, leading to a succession crisis so severe it led to a civil war called the Anarchy. So why did the ship sink? The two survivors of the wreck told a story of drunken revelry fueled by the 17-year-old William's decision, equal parts generous and ill-advised, to let the crew have at his private wine reserve. And this was before they had even weighed anchor. More lives would have been lost, but some people saw how drunk the crew was getting and decided they'd find their own way across the English Channel. Dry land is no guarantee of safety either. Back in Persepolis, many, many years before the Shah's big to-do, Alexander the Great convened a symposium in the city he decided to spare. Put aside any images you may have of learned, bearded, togued men discussing intellectual concepts. This symposium was an excuse to get drunk, then argue about philosophy. The guest list included heteras, highly educated and cultured sex workers. Among them was supposedly Theus of Athens, who was still a bit cross about the Persians burning the Acropolis, so she supposedly convinced Alexander to burn Persepolis to the ground. What did Alexander think? Capital idea! When the sun rose on the hungover soldiers and seducers, the ancient capital had been reduced to cinder and ash. Do you know who also makes excellent points but would never call for the burning of an entire city? The folks who are good enough to take the time to review the podcast and the book. I want to share one from over on podchaser.com. It is a really cool website. It's basically the IMDB of podcasting. And if you can't review a podcast on your app, you can always review it over there. Karen left us a lovely review. I sit through lots of long and anxiety-producing medical procedures, and Moxie's voice helps to keep me calm and otherwise engaged. Her facts are well-researched and organized, and her dry wit is an absolute delight. Love this podcast. Thank you so much, Karen. Dry wit is actually one of my life goals, 
and having been either the first party or the second party to a lot of medical stuff over the years, I'm glad I can help. Over on the book review side of things, Brian left us a five-star review, entertaining facts delivered with some moxie. I just received my copy of Wyboff the other day and have been reading it every spare moment. I've always loved learning about anything and everything, and possibly torturing my family and friends with unsolicited facts ad nauseum. I stumbled upon the Wyboff podcast a couple months ago and have already exhausted the catalog. It was my first podcast and I'm hooked. So anyone out there looking for some educational and easy listening to help dispel boredom during their workday, have at it. Moxie's voice is a dream. See, that's why I started doing the voiceover thing. Thank you so much for that, Brian. And on the voiceovers, don't be like, well, I don't have a big company. We're not putting out any TV commercials. You need voiceover for so much more than that. How does your phone system sound when customers call it? Is it presenting you in a good light? Do you want to do what are called audiograms, those little the little video clips with sound that you see on social media? I can do those for you too. Just email contact at moxielabouche.com. And if you'd like to share things with your fellow brainiacs other than your thoughts on the podcast and the book, like funny memes or cool interesting facts you just learned, head over to facebook.com slash groups slash brainiac breakroom or reddit r slash your brain on facts. And I know I've been promising to make a Discord server. I just don't click with Discord. So if anyone is a real Discord aficionado and would like to moderate a Your Brain on Facts Discord channel, I would love to hear from you. You can also get me on the social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. Heavy drinking by college students is nothing new. It even plagued the illustrious United States Military Academy at West Point, founded in 1802. The superintendent, General Thayer, prohibited alcohol on campus in 1826. As the winter holidays approached, the students realized this new rule was going to be a real buzzkill. Thankfully for their eggnog intentions, and this is back when eggnog was one part liquor to two parts all the other ingredients, whiskey and rum were easy to source from nearby taverns. A few nights before Christmas, three cadets crossed the river, had some drinks at Martin's Tavern, and purchased a few gallons of whiskey to go. They bribed a guard on the dock to look the other way while they snuck the whiskey into the dorm. Only two officers were assigned to monitor the North Barracks that night, Lieutenant William Thornton and Captain Ethan Hitchcock. Nothing much was going on, so the pair retired around midnight. At about 4 a.m., noise from the cadet's floor woke Hitchcock, who found a group of clearly drunk cadets and ordered them back to their rooms. That was when Hitchcock discovered a second party next door. The students there were so drunk, some of them tried to hide under blankets, and one thought he could avoid detection by pulling his hat down over his face. This second group didn't take the order to disperse as well as the first group had, and they decided to arm themselves with bayonets, pistols, and knives, and go after Hitchcock. The drunken cadets gathered their weapons, which Thornton and Hitchcock mistook for the sounds of the party resuming. Returning to the cadets' floor, Hitchcock met future president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, who ran into the party yelling, 
Put away the grog, boys. Captain Hitchcock's coming. Hitchcock ordered Davis to his room, which probably saved him from expulsion and preserved his future in the military and politics. Thanks, Hitchcock. Other cadets began attacking Hitchcock. Thornton showed up and got more of the same. One of the cadets actually shot at Hitchcock, so Hitchcock ordered a student not trying to kill him to get the commandant. The drunken cadets thought he was calling for the regular army that was quartered nearby. More cadets got in on the action, about a third of the student body, and as rioters are wont to do, started breaking everything in sight. Furniture, windows, you name it, to the tune of $4,000 in damage. The commandant finally arrived, and the cadets were cowed into submission, bringing an end to the eggnog riot. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. To celebrate his newly minted relationship with the Lenape people, Hudson broke out his private brandy, and soon everyone in the tribe was drunk as hell for the first time in their lives. After seeing Hudson and his men off in the morning and dealing with what must have been remarkable hangovers, the locals began referring to the little island where they had met as Manahachtaniek, roughly translated as either place of general inebriation or that island where we all got wasted. Today, it's pronounced Manhattan. See, I told you you'd heard of it. Special thanks to today's guest quote readers... Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, soon to be known as Ink and Ash. Drew from Real Feels Podcast. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the episode at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.